Our study through the book of 1 John. We're in chapter 5 this morning. We're going to be looking at the first five verses. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll get one right to your seat. Guys are ready to do the walking. So if John starts charging you for it, don't pay him. That's right, get a refund. 1 John chapter 5 this morning, we're going to be looking at the first five verses. John writes, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. The title of my message is Being a Part of the Family. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word and Lord, the power that it has to change our lives as we listen to it, as we apply it. Lord, you change us and you draw us closer to you and our relationship with you. So we thank you for our time together, Lord. We thank you for our children downstairs being ministered to, being taught your word uh, at the same time as we're being taught upstairs. We thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit in our lives. Lord, we do pray if there's anyone that has joined us that has yet to become a part of the family of God, they're not born again, we pray, Lord, that they would see their need for you and that come to faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, this morning. Thank you for our time together, Lord. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Most of you know that I have identical twin granddaughters, Aubrey and Finley. And when Natalie dresses them exactly the same, including the way she does their hair, you cannot tell the two apart unless you really know them. And what's amazing is their personalities resemble both Joey and Natalie. So we're babysitting Friday afternoon. Both girls were in their high chair. I put a handful of Cheerios uh, on each one of their trays. I turn around and look back, and Aubrey has each one of the Cheerios arranged in this perfect circle. I thought, wow, that is so like Natalie. I look over at Finley, and they're all over the tray, all over the floor. Hey, she's so much like Joey. I uh, Just amazing. See, your children take on certain family personality traits, characteristics that only you have in your family. Well, the same thing is true in the family of God. We all come from different walks of life, but as we're reborn, we now take on the family characteristics of our Heavenly Father. We have the same family features, uh, rebirth marks, if you will, that make us different than those not in the family, the nose in the world. See, John is, throughout this epistle, uh, has, has given us the authentic marks of a true Christian. And he shows us that it's righteousness, it's love, it's truth. We've seen that. Because if you're truly born again, if you're truly in the family of God, there will be certain characteristics in your life that set you apart from those in the world. Three of them I want to point out this morning, if you're taking notes. Three family resemblances we should all share as brothers and sisters in the family of God. Number one, we will appreciate God's people. Number two, we will apply God's principles. 
And number three, we'll, we will appropriate God's power. Now John starts out the chapter with verse 1 by saying, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Now John makes it clear right after that, you must believe in Jesus Christ. If you have, then you've been born in the God family. Now, it's really important for us to understand what that word believe means. When the Bible talks about believing in Christ for salvation, it's not merely talking about an intellectual belief or an intellectual agreement of facts. In fact, James tells us in James 2.19, you believe there's one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and they tremble. No, there's more than just agreeing to a set of facts. The idea is more so a commitment, the trust, the reliance upon one's life, that the fact that Jesus is the Christ. You know, it's like getting on an airplane. You can, you can sit in the, in the, you know, the, uh, what's it called? The airport um, terminal. Thank you very much. You can sit in the terminal. You can sit on the runway, but I wouldn't advise that. But you can sit in the terminal, and you can look at that plane sitting there, and you can say, well, I believe intellectually that plane can fly. But until you get on that plane and put your seatbelt on, then you're saying, I totally believe that this plane can fly. You've committed yourself to the plane. Making that commitment of, of myself. So this belief here is not just an intellectual belief, but it's a commitment of one's life to Jesus Christ. And the word Christ, we know, means Messiah or the anointed one. You need to believe and commit yourself to the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one. And if you do, then you are a child of God. You're born of God, John says in verse 1. That term, born of God, John likes to use that. Seven times in particular, he uses it uh, in this chapter as well. Not only was this term born of God one of John's favorite terms, but he also makes it very clear that a person doesn't make it into the kingdom of heaven unless he or she is born of God. Remember, John is the one that wrote the Gospel of John. He was the one that recorded that, that interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus when Jesus told Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you will not enter the kingdom of God. It's interesting to me that nowadays people see born again uh, as, as a type of Christian. You know, you've got your Methodists, you've got your Presbyterians, you've got your Evangelicals, and you've got your born-againers. You know, have you heard that before? I remember talking to someone years ago, and they said to me that they were a Christian. He said, I'm a Christian, but, but I'm not one of those born-againers. Okay, well, that doesn't work, okay? <laughs> it doesn't work. The only way to be a Christian is to be born again. If you're any kind of true Christian, you're born again. I mean, a great eternal question that God will ask is, okay, are you Methodist? Are you Presbyterian? Are you Calvary Chapelite? No. The question is, are you born again? See, the issue is it's new birth, and it's only this new birth that brings change, dramatic change. I read a story about uh, Charles Darwin, Darwin back in 1833, the father of the evolution, visited the South Sea Islands, and he was looking for the missing link. Still looking, but he found a group of cannibals on that island and thought, this is the most primitive culture I've ever found. They would never be able to raise to any kind of higher level than that of cannibalistic caveman type of level. And he wrote this in his journal. Uh, he wrote that in his journal, rather. He returned 34 years later only to find among the same group of people that some were living in homes, some were going to schools, they, they wore clothes, had churches. There was a society built there. And as he researched it, he found that it was to be attributed to the work of a guy by the name of John Patton, a missionary who shared the gospel with these people. Their lives were transformed. 
Their love grew for each other. They stopped eating people, which is a good thing. Don't eat people. And they show this higher level of humanity, a radical change. In fact, Darwin was so impressed by it that he actually gave a lot of money to the London Missionary Society when he returned back to England. My point is the gospel brings radical change. Now, how do you know that you have this new birth? You say, well, every time I come to church, I get this warm feeling all over and tingles and I know I'm a Christian. Or you say, well, I've always been a Christian. Our family's been members of that church up the street for many, many generations, so I'm a Christian. Listen, but how do you know you are in the family of God? I like the, what the pastor, late pastor Ray Stedman said. He gives us the best, best entry. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is his Lord, his supreme concern and authority in life, the one around whom his life is built, that one is in the family. I like that. See, here John says it all comes back down to family resemblance. You'll look like you're a part of the family. There'll be certain rebirth marks that we're all going to have. Your life will be one, a life that's marked of obedience, as John said in chapter 1, verse 5, through chapter 2, verse 6. Your life is going to be one that's marked by love, as John said in chapter 4. And by truth, as he says in chapter 5. Now, why would John use these marks or characteristics to determine fellowship and family resemblance? It's very simple. The answer, because God, we are created in the image of God. We have certain characteristics patterned after God. We have a, a brain to reason with. We have a heart to fill with. We have a will to make decisions. We sometimes refer to these aspects of our personality as mind, emotion, and will. I think most people are dissatisfied today because their total personality has never been controlled by something real and meaningful. But when a person is born again through faith in Jesus Christ, God's Spirit comes to reside in them forever. And he or she has fellowship with God in reading and studying the Bible and in prayer. And the Holy Spirit is able to control uh, mind, heart, and will. And then what happens? A change takes place. Because a spirit-controlled mind knows and understands the truth. A spirit-controlled heart feels love. A spirit-controlled will will incline itself to obedience. All these things believers will have in common. In other words, if you're truly a born-again believer, you're going to have family resemblance to who Jesus is. Jesus is truth. Jesus' life was that a life of love. Jesus was most of all obedient even to the point of death, death on the cross. Now that brings us to, to point number one, if you're truly born again uh, into the family of God, there will be other characteristics that you, set you apart from the rest of the world. You will be, point number one, you will appreciate God's people. Look at verse one again. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. In other words, the New Living Translation puts it this way. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is a child of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his children too. See, John has been driving this point over and over again. If you say you love God, then you're going to love his kids. You can't say to some, some dad, man, I really love you, man, but I can't stand your kid. I hate your kid, you know. No, you're going to want what's best for his kids if you love the dad. And all true Christians belong to one family. We're saved by God's grace and we're led by His Spirit. We share the blessings that He's given to us. Therefore, we are under the same obligation to love God and to love one another. Now, it may seem as we get to chapter 5 that, that John is, is, is 
bringing a new thought. But in reality, he's just reiterating what he already said in chapter 4, verse 21. And this is the commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. John just can't get away from that subject of love. Uh, I love that. I mean, it's such an important subject even for the Christian life. Remember when, when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And his response in Mark 12, 30 and 31 was, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And then someone asked Jesus, well, then who is my neighbor? And Jesus proceeded to tell the story of the Good Samaritan. Same way, the same way the question being anticipated here is, well, who is my brother? The answer, everyone who's born again. Now, does that mean that we don't have to love an unbeliever? <laughs> no, it simply means that, that love begins in the family first. Everyone born of the Spirit of God into the family of God is to be loved and accepted by everyone in the family. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to agree with everything that they do, but you're still going to show the love of Jesus by how we treat each other. And because, as we looked at already, that, that God's love, then the closer I get to the Lord, the more His love will rub off of me, and the more I can love one another. Now, again, that's not to say that we don't have differences. We all have differences, and some personalities are harder to get along with than with others. You know, in any family, you got that weird uncle, you got the strange aunt, the bizarre cousins, and, and, and grandpa is just getting crazier every year. But you deal with that. And that just means love covers all. You know, enjoy the difference. You know, what about, well, what about those differences? Somebody said, well, I really can't stand that person. I came out with them. It just, man, it just gets on my nerves. Or the way that, that person sings, oh, man, it just hurts my ears. I can't love that person. Look what John says. Verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. What's his commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, when your loving actions towards another Christian comes not from personal feelings towards your brother or sister, but from an authentic, genuine love for God and a desire to obey his word, then it's really easy to have the love that God wants us to have towards each other. Again, that doesn't mean there won't be conflicts. It just means that you'll be able to handle those conflicts with truth and with the love of God. And sometimes... We need to speak the truth and love one to another. Maybe you've been facing a situation in your life before when someone wanted you to lie for them. Not only like, would you lie for me, they just say, "Well, well, just you know, if you really love me, then can you do this for me?" And you knew that it would be a lie, and maybe you did because you feared losing the relationship or you thought they might get angry with you. The truth is, is if you love someone, you're going to speak the truth. You'll be unwilling to lie for them. It's been said that love may seem cruel before it's kind. And sometimes we engage in little white lies. You know, what's a white lie? Well, it's a way of pleasing yourself by avoiding please, uh, displeasing others. Sometimes we, we, we stretch the truth a little bit about the way a person looks. So you say something nice that, that you know, they just want to hear. They may ask, well, well how do I look? Oh, man, your, your hair, I can tell. You really spend a lot of time working on it. How do I look? Oh, that dress, that dress is, it's you. The dress, the dress is you. And we say whatever we can so we won't lie. But there are other times when we avoid other people's anger by using white lies. But what we're really doing is we're loving ourselves more than we love them. 
We, want, we don't want to be hurt by their reaction, so we avoid telling the truth. The bottom line is we truly love them. We'll speak the truth. Listen, truth delivers. Truth sets us free. That's what Jesus said. In John eight thirty two. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. I think we often lose the chance to help people achieve freedom because we cover up the truth instead of speaking the truth in love. I remember a story from years ago that Pastor John Corson shared uh, after preaching his sermon that he thought went really, really well. And he walked to the back of the church and he's greeting people on the way out and he's thinking to himself, you know, someone's going to say, hey, that was a really good sermon, Pastor. And he's kind of waiting and and no one said anything. And finally, a brother came to him and says, hey, hey, I I just need to talk to you a little bit. He says, okay. And I was thinking, oh, this is it. He says, I just want you to know that during your whole sermon, your fly was down. And, and, and so you might want to fix that. You know, I would not have a problem if someone's speaking that truth to me before I get up here to share God's words. <laughs> not after. See, being a part of the family of God, you will appreciate each other. You'll watch out for one another. You'll speak the truth to each other. You'll be praying for one another. You'll be encouraging one another. You'll be seeking how you might bless one another. Let me tell you, I am so grateful for each and every one of you here. I am a blessed pastor. And I appreciate each and every one of you because we're family. And when you're born again into the family of God, you will appreciate God's people. And that brings us to our second point. When you're truly born again into the family of God, you're going to apply God's principles. Look again at verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. See, John is tying all this together. We know that if we love God, we will keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing to Him. Verse 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. See, when you discover the truth of verse 2, you're ready for verse 3. If you truly know Christ, you're going to want to obey the commands of Christ. He says, John, that they're not burdensome. That word for burdensome is literally heavy. His commandments are not heavy. This does not mean they're not difficult to keep, but rather they don't impose a burden when they are kept. John is saying that as a child of God, you'll want to keep his commandments. It's not burdensome. It's like the little girl who was carrying a big, heavy baby and was asked by this concerned woman, little girl, isn't that baby too heavy for you? The child replied, he's not heavy. He's my brother. Let me say this, <laughs> something worthwhile. The, the Bible is filled with rules. I'll not deny that. But the Bible is also filled with promises. And I've come to see that so many of these rules are not here to make my life miserable, but they're rather here to protect me from potential harm. God tells me not to do certain things for my own good. I don't find that burdensome. God says, don't murder. Shucks, I can't murder. What a burden. No. God says, I'm not supposed to steal. Oh, the Lord just doesn't want me to have any fun. They're not burdensome. How about the Lord saying, I can't commit adultery or take the Lord's name in vain? Listen, if you find God's commands burdensome, then it would make me wonder if you truly love God and know God. Because if you're living for Christ and His commandments make perfect sense, and if Christ is living in you, when He tells you to stay away from something, uh, you say, but of course, why would I want to do that which God is, is telling me to stay away from? God is telling me this is bad for me. If you are His child, you'll obey His commandments, plain and simple. But the person who is blatantly and continually breaking the commandments of God simply does not know Him. 
Because again, if you're born again, you'll love and obey the word of God. That's what John said back in chapter 2, verse 5. If anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. So you cannot effectively live the Christian life without a love and obedience to the word of God. Jesus said in John 8, 31, If you abide in my word, you are my disciple indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. See, all true disciples of Christ will be students of Scripture and walk according to its teaching. It's vital to authentic Christianity and Christian living, for the Bible is indeed the very textbook of life. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16 in the New Living Translation, All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It straightens us out and teaches us to do what is right. It is God's way of preparing us in every way, fully equipped for every good thing God wants us to do. That's what the Word of God accomplishes in our life. It shows us what's wrong in our life. It straightens us out. It teaches us to do what is right. But sadly, far too many Christians are not reading their Bible. They don't realize that success or failure in the Christian life is dependent on how much of the Bible you get in your heart on a regular basis. You have to have it. You have to apply it. That is something that will characterize a true believer. And when I first came to Christ, I started memorizing verses from the Bible. Those same verses are still in my memory today. Verses I memorized them 42 years ago. They're still there. I'm so glad that I filled up the memory banks with something worthwhile. Not just lyrics to I Think I Love You by the Partridge Family. I, I mean, I know every single word of that song. Lord, thank you that it's not, my brain's not filled up with that. Listen, rather than memorizing old songs, I encourage you to start committing yourself to Bible memorization. Know the Word of God. Let it get deeply ingrained into your mind and into your heart. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. If you're going to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ, then you're going to get into the Word, you're going to study the Word, you're going to know the Word, you're going to apply the Word, you're going to take God at His Word. If his word tells you, uh, I mean, how to live, how to love, how to walk in the light as he's in the light, then a true believer is going to apply God's principles in their life. It's called sanctification, reading the word and obeying it and allowing it to transform the way you live. But I think sadly today in a lot of churches, it's all about emotionalism and and hype and, and what can make me feel better instantly. Instead of what does God's word say about this, uh, this situation? What should I do in this circumstance? Listen, a true believer will apply God's principles in every situation. What would Jesus do? What does God want me to do? What does his word say for me to do? As a child of God, you're going to want to keep his commandments. If you're a true follower of Jesus, you'll obey what he says. You'll apply godly principles. Are you having trouble in your marriage? Look to God's word, apply God's principles, and see and watch God move. Now listen. Don't dig into God's Word looking for what you should tell your wife that she should do. And wives, don't dig into God's Word looking for what you can tell your husband what he should do. Dig into God's Word and look for what God has called you to do. See, the problem for some, they want to pick and choose the commandments to obey, and the ones they don't like or agree with, they want to throw it out. 
And it's kind of like, like a, a God's word is a celestial salad bar. You know, you pick some and stuff you like and some you leave alone. You know, when I go to salad bar, I don't put everything on my plate. There are certain, certain things that I refuse to. For instance, I hate lima beans. Some people love them. I hate them. I know hate is a strong word, but it's true. I have hatred in my heart towards lima beans. I'm confessing it. I also don't like three bean salads. Not much difference. I don't mind broccoli, mushrooms, bell pepper. Certain things I like, certain things I don't like. I make my selection at the salad bar. But sadly, some people, they look at the Word of God the same way. Oh, you know, I, I like this commandment, but I don't like what that says, so that doesn't apply to me, and, and that, that's not relevant. Doesn't apply. doesn't work that way. God calls us to apply the whole counsel of God into our lives, even if some of it's hard to swallow, even if some of it is hard going down. Because if you're truly born again into the family of God, you will, number one, appreciate God's people. Number two, apply God's principle. Point number three, if you're really a part of the family of God, you're going to appropriate God's power. Third point. Remember when I first got my uh, Toyota back in 2013, I was driving Joey to some baseball tournament. I think I was on my way home, and, and I got behind a slow-moving car, and, and so I go to pass it, not realizing how much power my, you know, my Venza had, like 268 horsepower. So I punched it. I actually felt my body go back. I, I felt you know, the car go like this. Whoa, it's scary. And then it became fun. I was like, oh, okay, this is cool. But in order to pass that car, I, I had to appropriate that power. Today, more than ever, we need the power of God in our lives. But what we don't realize is it's already there. We just need to appropriate it. So how do we appropriate God's power in our lives? Let me give you a few examples. First thing, we can appropriate God's power in our lives by remembering the great things that God has done. Remembering the great things that God has done. Psalm 105, verse 4 and 5 says, Search for the Lord and for His strength. Continually seek Him. Remember the wonders He has performed, His miracles and the rulings He has given. Remember the way God has, has, has worked in the past and it will encourage you and it will strengthen you to move on in the, in the future. Every miracle recorded in the Bible for us should, should give us encouragement that His strength is more than enough for our needs. And knowing that gives us the power to get up each and every day and live for Him. Another way we can appropriate God's power is stop trusting in our own power. We must learn to stop uh, trusting in our weak efforts and hand our resources over to the one who can do something about it. We can't do anything about it. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 12.9 that God's power is perfected in our weaknesses. I think of the disciples when they were at their wit's end trying to figure out how are they going to feed 5,000 people that have been hanging out for a few days. It wasn't until they, they brought that little bit of food that they had to Jesus and said, hey, this is all we had, that anyone was fed. Jesus, we have no power. This is all we got. And what did Jesus do? He fed 5,000 plus women and children uh, there at that moment. Or I think of Joshua when he stood helpless before the walls of Jericho. But he learned to trust the Lord's battle plan. Those walls came tumbling down. Zerubbabel faced the daunting task of rebuilding the temple. And God reminded him in Zechariah 4 verse 6 that the work would be done not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. See, when you get your foot off the brake, which is trusting in your own power, and you put your foot on the gas and begin to fully trust in the Lord, you will see God's power in your life in mighty ways. 
Another way we can appropriate God's power is through prayer. Prayer is a vital part of relying on the power of God as we pray, Lord, your will be done. Lord, would you move? Jesus in Matthew 7, 7 and 8 said, Ask and it will be given to you and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receive, and he who seeks, find. And in him who knocks, it will be opened. I think of after that prayer meeting in Acts chapter 4, verse 31, the early church there. We read, and when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Just power through prayer. You know, uh, let me say as well, the resurrection of Jesus certainly demonstrates the great power of God and the great hope of all believers. So we have the power of God in our lives through remembering the great things God has done, through trusting, not trusting in our own power, through prayer. Through his resurrection, we have hope. But you see, for those who seek to live for the Lord without an appreciation of God's people, without applying God's principle, there will be no power in your life. In fact, it will be a very frustrating life because you're living in the energies of your flesh. But for those that are born again, look at verse 4 and 5. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. I like that overcome is a word that John uses quite often. 1 John 2, 13 through 14, he makes a reference to overcoming the devil. He uses the word seven times in the book of Revelation to describe believers and the blessings they receive. Now, he's not talking about some special class of super-anointed, Holy Ghost-filled, devil-stomping, super-Christian. This is a description of of a a garden-variety Christian. We're overcomers. It's a name given to Christians by virtue of the fact that they're born again. Now you might say, well, how can I be an overcomer? I'm dealing with some pretty heavy things right now, and I'm feeling like, like I'm being overcome by those things. How can I be an overcomer? John tells us how. Again, look at verse 4. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. It's faith that saves us. It's faith that keeps us. We're saved by faith. We walk by faith. We're born again children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And the only way which you and I will be able to overcome this world around us is by faith. What does it mean to overcome the world? A few things. Paul in Romans 8.36 and speaking to the Christians there uh, in Rome spoke of tribulation, distress, persecution, famine. But then he said this in Romans 8.37. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That word conqueror and the word overcome, it's the same Greek word, upernikeo. Uh, in other words, we're super conquerors. Overcomers to him who loved us. And that was true. The early church in the midst of persecution stood firm. I mean, just read stories of Fox's Book of Martyrs and, and, and read the, the stories, uh, uh, the, the testimonies of the saints that withstood the persecution that died for their faith. See, John here is using this word, though, in the present tense and saying that we overcome the world. It's presently. It's happening now. He uses it in a couple other places. First John 2.14, he says, I've written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. John 1 First uh, John 4, 5, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in the, you is greater than he who is in the world. 
So John says, hey, you've already overcome the world and you've already overcome Satan. The world, in, the, in this sense, is a worldly system. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Though it is very, very real, it doesn't completely overwhelm the life of the believer. And you overcome Satan because the Word of God abides in you. Now again, you may say, well, then why am I hassled all the time by the devil? And I actually lose a few squirmishes now and then. Well, join the crowd. <laughs> we all do. You may not have total victory now over every single thing. That is, you're not flawless, neither am I. But positionally, it's done. You've conquered it. Presently, experientially, now you're becoming more and more like Jesus. And the battles are getting a little bit easier to win, though they're still here. But they're not overwhelming you. Because you've learned the Word of God more and more, and you're experiencing more and more victory. And ultimately, you will win the battle. Listen to what John writes in Revelation 7, 17, 14. Upon Jesus' return to the earth, the Antichrist and his armies, it says, these will make war with the Lamb, speaking of Jesus, and the Lamb will overcome them, for he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. I love that. you catch that? It's a done deal. We're coming back with the Lord, and he calls us chosen and faithful. In other words, we win in the end. You know, so, so it's always good whenever you have missiles flying at you, fiery darts of the wicked one shot our way, and you think you're being overwhelmed, crushed by the world. It's always good to skip to the back of the book and see how it all turns out. <laughs> turns out okay. Story isn't over until you read the last chapters. Chapter 21 of Revelation. These words in verse 7, He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. I mean, don't you just love that? We, we know how it's going to turn out. Now people, you know, you, you'll ask them, well, how's it going? And I'll say, well, I'm doing pretty good under the circumstances. Get out from under the circumstances. Be overcomers. I like what Paul wrote to the Romans. He said in Romans 16:20, And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Say amen to that. Now I might say, well, that sounds simple, but I still see a lot of defeated believers. The divorce rate is up even in the church. There's unwed mothers even in the church. People struggling with drug and alcohol in the church. People always seem to have a battle with sin. Seems like the world and the devil has a strong grip on them. Well, I believe if that's the case, it's for a couple reasons. Unbelief and ignorance. I don't want to make it too simplistic, but, but listen, Jesus said to the Pharisees who thought that they had it all together, he said to them, you err because you don't know Scripture nor the power of God. All that is related to unbelief because whenever we don't believe that God loves us that much as he says he does, we're afraid. And fear grips us. And wherever there's fear, there's no power. As we, we looked at recently, love and fear are mutually exclusive. When we're afraid, we start compromising. Fear of men, fear of rejection, fear of success, fear of failure, fear of losing friends, fear of death, fear of approval or your job, and suddenly unbelief sets in. Praise God we looked at last time. Perfect love casts out all fear. I mean, back at chapter 4, verse 16, John said, and we have known and believed that love that God has for us. And then he says, perfect love casts out all fear. Maybe you saw this meme. I thought it was great. It's called Fear Strikes. 2000, Y2K is going to destroy everything. 2001, anthrax is going to kill us all. 2002, West Nile virus is going to kill us all. 
2003, SARS is going to kill us all. 2005, bird flu is going to kill us all. 2006, E. coli is going to kill us all. 2008, financial collapse is going to kill us all. 2009, swine flu is going to kill us all. 2012, the Mayan calendar predicts the world's ending. 2013, North Korea is going to cause World War III. 2014, Ebola virus is going to kill us all. 2015, ISIS is going to kill us all. 2016, the Zika virus is going to kill us all. 2020, coronavirus is going to kill us all. The truth is, fear is going to kill you. Turn off the TV and wash your hands. I like that. I'd say turn off the TV and read your Bible. Many people are just unaware of their position in Christ, and because of fear, they fail to appropriate the power of God. Listen to what Jesus said in John 16.33. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. It's done. Yes, the skirmishes are still there. Satan still uses the allurements of the world. And we can get bogged down at times and we can fail and we can fall from time to time. But it doesn't completely crush us. We go on, we get up, and we move forward. Why? Because the battle's already been won. At the cross, Jesus overcame the world for us. At his resurrection, he proved it. And as a part of the family of God, we've been set free from the power of the world, the power the devil has over us, but from the power of fear. F.J. Hugel, in his book, Forever Triumphant, tells a story that came out of World War II. A General Wayne Wright was captured by the Japanese. He was held prisoner in a Manchurian concentration camp, cruelly treated. Uh, he became a broken, crushed, hopeless, starving man. Finally, the Japanese surrendered at the war, as the war ended, and a United States Army colonel was then sent to the camp to announce personally to the general that Japan had been defeated and that he was free and that he was now in command. After Wainwright heard the news, he returned to his quarters and was confronted by some guards who began to mistreat him as they'd done in the past. Wainwright, however, with the news of the Allied victory still fresh in his mind, declared with authority, No, I am in command here. These are my orders. And F.J. Hugo made this application. Have you been informed of the victory of your Savior in the greatest conflict of the ages? Then rise up to assert your rights. Never again go under when the enemy comes to oppress. Claim the victory in Jesus' name. We must learn to stand on resurrection ground, reckoning dead the old creation life over which Satan has no power, and now living in the new creation over which Satan has no power whatever. As Christians, we have rebirth marks. We have family resemblances. And one of them is now we are overcomers. You have access to the power of God, so step on it. Use it. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us, the Bible says. Outside of Jesus Christ, you can be totally torn and crushed by this world system. But if you want victorious, overcoming life, understand it's Christ alone through faith alone. It's in Jesus. It's in a relationship with him. Yeah, the world can be alluring. It's designed by the devil to crush us. It doesn't have to. I want to close with these words from a Norwegian catechism book that I heard one pastor share. It's a story about how God is briefing his children who's going to be sent out to this island called Earth. And this is what he says. Listen. The greatest danger is that you may fall in love with this island so that you will not care to return to the home kingdom. Love the island because it is my possession, but do not love it because it is your home. It is not your home. Your home is here in the palace with me. I like that.
There's, a, there's an old hymn called, My Jesus, I Love Thee. And I love the third verse. It says this, I love thee in life, I will love thee in death, and praise thee as long as thou lendest me breath. And say when the death do lies cold on my brow, if ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. See, even in the face of death, we have a, a bright future for the believer because this world is not our home. We've overcome it. Why? Because you're a child of God. You're part of the family of God. You have certain rebirth marks. You will appreciate God's people. You apply God's principles. And you will appropriate God's power. You will overcome. Third century, Cyprian, the bishop of Carthage, wrote to his friend Donatus. He said this, It's a bad world, Donatus, an incredibly bad world. But I've discovered in the midst of it a quiet and good people who have learned the great secret of life. They found a joy and wisdom which is a thousand times better than any of the pleasures of our sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. They are masters of their souls. They've overcome the world. These people, Donatus, are Christians, and I am one of them. I like that. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're not a part of the family of God, what are you waiting for? Come on in. Be a part of the family. We invite you into the family. Just turn to Jesus. Say, Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. Confess that you're a sinner. Ask him to forgive you. He will come into your life. He will fill that void in your life. He'll give you victory over sin. He'll give you his Holy Spirit to to lead and guide you, to empower you. He'll make living in this time and day in which we live uh, not a burden, but a blessing. If you don't know Christ this morning, I urge you, before you leave, make that commitment to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the power of your Holy Spirit working in and through our lives. Thank you, Lord, for the things that we as believers have in common, Lord, that we appreciate God's people. We apply your principles. Lord, we appropriate your power. Lord, we are a blessed people. Lord, help us to live for you each and every day. Any The, the time that we have left, Lord, that we might shine bright in this dark world knowing that we have the power to live by you, Lord. It's not that we're searching for power. We just need to apply what we already have in our lives. And finally, Father, I pray if there's anyone here that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again. Touch them, Lord, I pray. Speak to their hearts. Help them make that decision to follow you from this day forward for the rest of their lives.